Hello and welcome to the Chicana Code Switchers podcast. Your co-hosts are Ariana and Patricia. We are both Chicana scholar practitioners in higher education. Each episode, we discuss insights, tips, and resources for students and practitioners in higher education with a focus on social justice and platicas. With that being said, let's start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Chicana Code Switchers. My name is Ariana, and I'm here with my co-host, Patricia. Hi, everyone. Um, it's really a great, awesome time to have you all back for a new episode. And we also wanted to dedicate some time to give a big shout out to our old time listeners. And also we've found um, a new wave of new followers and listeners who have been sending us some really amazing um, positive messages saying how they have been been able to relate to our content, to um, our guests, and just the conversations and posts that we put it and resources on our social media pages. Um, big shout out to you all. And this work would not be um, been able to be sustained for this long without your support. Yeah, so it's been really worthwhile. And I completely agree with the shout out that Patricia just did. Uh, for all of you, we're here to share resources, information. We um, are grateful that you find it helpful. Um, and also, uh, just a heads up, our upcoming episode has some technical issues per usual um we are adapting to technology and using different platforms so just wanted to give you all a heads up that we're working on that in case you hear any pauses or anything just know that we're working on it and hope that our future episodes are get um get even better yes um that's what happens when you're using a free platform <laughs> and um the kind of the cost of you know just having guests and, you know, not being able to provide them with equipment or, you know, sometimes even in my case, like internet connection <laughs> or things like that. So um, hopefully the content and information is worthwhile to listen. There are some glitches, hopefully, um, and sometimes some background noises. And so, um, but the content and the information is really great. Um, the only thing is that we are, trying to figure out since anchor since that last episode where we lost our recording has never been the same um but hopefully um we're trying to make sure to adapt and change our structure to provide clear content so hi everyone i'm patricia and today we have um our guest liz sanchez their pronouns are they them theirs uh, their guest position they are a professor of lgbtq studies and social justice movements at fullerton college um, liz has recently graduated with a master's degree in sociology from cal state fullerton where they also received their bachelor's in sociology and queer studies for the past 10 years, they have been an active community organizer within Orange County and the California State University system. Their, this work led to their passion in education and transformative justice through a queer lens. Their thesis and recent publication focuses on student activism in higher education and the complexities in political organizing on college campuses. So welcome, Liz. <laughs> Thank you, I'm excited to be here. <laughs> 
So um, to start off, uh, I met Liz through a mutual friend when I was a part of SQE. So SQE stands for Students for Quality Education. Um, it's a big student um, organization, kind of functions like a club in certain campuses. I met through as one of my friends, um, was the president of the campus at Sonoma State University. And she had referred me to Liz's work and the way that and the things that they were doing, because I believe at that time, Liz was starting or in their master's degree. Um, and recently, I've been looking at the publications you've made, like on social media about like your thesis and your thesis topic, as we've discussed previously in our episodes about thesis and just how hard it is for master students to do this kind of work or even put together and conceptualize student organizing or social justice, anything in research is very, very difficult. And especially when it comes to really holding institutions accountable. So I'm really excited to have Liz here to really dive into their work. And um, Ariana, could you ask the first question? Yes, so Liz, how did you first get involved in student movements in the CSU system? How has this made an impact on how you experience your CSU campus as a student? Um, so student organizing, I mean, I started back at the community college days. Uh, I start off, you know, just like any other student, like you join a club based on like your cultural identity or ex political experiences and just trying to connect with others that have similarities. Um, and so uh, my first organization I ever joined was an, uh, it was called Lambda Society, the LGBTQ club on campus. And so from there, you know, start getting into the political work, but it got to transfer to Cal State Fullerton, I got more involved with queer studies and the women and genders department. And it was very organic, basically having a group of like angry folks. And I mean that in the most loving way, like it was like, we're pissed off at the system. We all had like background experiences with like clubs and just different types of organizing. So we just kind of collectively came together and said like, how can we start addressing this stuff? And so this small group of people, we just started like, let's just do direct actions. And it was reactionary. But because of that, we also started connecting with others and learning more about the history behind the CSU. And that's where uh, a lot of that, um, um, like, uh, kind of like these, uh, what do you call them, like these flyers and like these zines and just these pamphlets made by an organization called SQE. And then we found out SQE was hiring at Cal State Fullerton. So a few of us, well, I think actually almost the entire group applied for it. And, you know, a few of us uh, were elected to be the coordinators, but everyone obviously uh, came together as a group. Um, it just it just skyrocketed into like it, it went from my undergrad uh, all the way to my uh, you know being in the master's program. SQE was just it, it's just amazing group of organizers. A lot of complexities though, and and so and that leads into like that that experience of like I learned a lot and had a lot of ups and downs. Um, and I wish we talked more about the reality of organizing, whether it's on on a campus or out in the local community. I wish we talked about how it can get really uncomfortable because you're expanding as a person and sometimes it has to happen so quickly. And at the same time, um, we're all growing and learning and then we exist within call out culture and cancel culture. And it's like, to me, I'm huge for transformative justice. I love Adrienne Marie Brown um, and all scholars and, and authors and, and organizers that work under that umbrella. But it's really hard to have that lens when there's so many people out there who don't feel heard and um 
and so it that's I think that's the part where it's like fighting the system and stuff we all came together we're like f the chancellor f like um this this uh, the ivory tower like it we knew that that was the oppressor but then when you start having like little things like you know identities and and experiences and this group wants to be heard this other group wants to be heard and we're realizing oh we have to share space that's where sqe like really like challenged all of us involved so like we all had to be personally challenged and also it, there was a lot to it there's clubs that hated us there were clubs that absolutely hated us because we we're so loud and uh beautifully obnoxious too <laughs> um and but we always had to figure out how do we continue to build that coalition and that's what inspired the work so i very much wrote this thesis not from uh, uh you know the lgbt experience or the chicana experience or the black experience i wrote it from a looking at coalition building to address a bigger issue and so that's how i kind of just approached it and all my work really is like taking a step back and it's like how can we support one another do coalition building with a transformative lens while also realizing there's this really messed up system above us and um it's hard <laughs> i know it's a long answer <laughs> yeah and i think that that has been really interesting in terms of coalition and sqe what I found particularly interesting, especially since I was previously in student government, we have always student government leaders saying that they need to hear student voices, they need to hear student voices. But then when students are really loud and unapologetic, like SQE is in the CSU system, it has been really interesting how there's like this not wanting to have, like there's a particular kind of student that they want to listen to. They yeah. want it to be very respectability politics, very much in you have to be nice, you have to go through the procedures. But it's interesting how now we're looking at, you know, what was the impact you experienced as a CSU student and within this campus experience with organizing, how, how like how can you relate this to your current thesis now post being a student? So now it's like taking those uncomfortable conversation experiences and applying them into the work that I do now and um, partnering with new people. Just the other yesterday, I was looking at some of my old posts of some of the work I was doing with CSSA, which is the California Student State California State Student Association, which is like for the CSU system, it's like the big government, the big student government for the entire state, uh, for all twenty three campuses. And there was a picture of, um, you know, I remember a student trustee sent it to me because she knew that I would be willing to put this information out there because she was too scared to do it. Um, so it was a picture of a CSSA rep, a student rep, who was stand, standing and advocating out flyers, basically telling students on his campus that there's only two genders. And this was our CSSA rep. Um, and people were nervous about how to discuss it because at the same time he is also a black he is a black man. So again, you have these intersections come together, and it's like, like wait, how do you do you call out what what do you do? And so I try to I well being a researcher I'd want to observe, but um, a huge thing for my work is autoethnography. So it's like also putting myself in a situation, being reflective of how I want to react and how I was feeling in that situation. And so I was documenting and also reacting at the same time. Um, so I tried to approach it, like how do we address the issue and not the person? You know, he is a black man. We can't go in there and attack his character and attack him. 
and it's hard like but he's also you know promoting the idea that there's only two genders and he's a student representative and that really goes against what we're used to as far as organizing so sqe comes from a union background and we're so used to calling people out we would show up to uh, the chancellor's office and be calling out everyone and then you know over time we start having this question like wait the woman we just yelled at made fun of totally like put her information out there as a woman of color and that's so hard to unpack now these days. It's like, so how do like, and that's what we're trying to do now. So my partner and I, we have like a, a, a bias um, a workshop that we do. And so it's just like now it's, it's like taking this work, taking these experiences of like, how can a group of people who feel so disadvantaged within a system, how do we now, how do we organize in these new complexities that we're seeing? So it's like, as we fought for representation, and we're slowly getting it, what happens when you have someone that you culturally identify with is now a person in a position of power that is working against you? So we're trying to walk that line. And I'm really inspired by the work I did because that's what I observed a lot. Um, you know, one of the people, or quite a few of the participants in my study, like, and one woman stands out the most, like she uh, she was a ASI president, um, She's black and she was standing there listening to her peers talk so much crap about her. And, you know, they weren't, you know, all white. Um, and so she had a sit there and like, how the, what the hell's going on? And so that's what's really hard. It's like you had ASI who says, we're, we're all for student voices. We all want diversity. But then you had this really ugliness underneath it all. And I, so now that's what we're trying to do is like, how do we address that part of it? Yeah. But they said to you, I mean, you were really involved. It just reminded me of like the times that you were really involved on campus, right? And trying to navigate those politics and trying to navigate that as a student, right? You were um, not only studying, but you were heavily involved. And I, I just was always amazed about how much you all took on yourselves to advocate to put people in their place, to ask the difficult questions like, how, did, how does what was um, shared with us resonate with you and your experience? Yeah, I think it ties really well with our previous episodes when we've been talking about, and it ties really well with my thesis as well, like when you're looking at the rationale of these administrators um, and you're coming in, Liz, you're saying like seeing that the person has changed, you know, the administrator is not this white guy that you're thinking about, like, I'm going to go into the office and start yelling. It's, it's a lot more complex than that. It's someone you may have heard in meetings who you have seen do research in supposedly equity work, who is involved in these committees, who has presented, you know, themselves as part of this community and in community you've, you've had much more in contact with and who is now promising you certain things as a student who are you're believing and then later on when it comes to actually policy or when you're actually collaborating with them as a colleague it's very very different the the like the whiteness and white supremacy are coming out so i always tell people that through this organizing myself like it, it has been a huge red flag for me to see you know like to not trust the person immediately 
because I'm like, I have to see how they work with someone if you're at that same level. It's very different as a student in the classroom as it is as a colleague who you're supposed to be organizing in conjunction with or against, you know, um, or sometimes they kind of flip it on you and then you're just like, where was that coming from? Um, and so I think it it's becoming a lot more challenging in terms of, you know, what we're discussing in organizing spaces in terms of call out culture. Um, it's, I think I've, I, I would recommend everyone to really follow Erica Hart's work um, and Ebony and especially their, their podcast, um, Decolonizing Podcast, really talking about that call outs. I mean, call-ins are very coddling um, if you're talking about really the damage and the harm that these people are promoting and doing. Um, it, it's it's always going to be heard as a call out when it's talking about accountability. No matter how nice you want to put it, it's always going to be heard as a call out. And it's, and it's so angering that the person who is at the harm is supposed to navigate all these loopholes, all these emotions, all these things, and not even prioritize their anger, their hurt, their damage. So I think it's it's such a big responsibility and it's such a big work on the part of the person who has been damaged to have to be navigating all these respectability because you're supposed to take into consideration the other person, the aggressor's feelings. Knowing that higher ed is seemed as this really you know, distance position that we put ourselves in where we're supposed to, you know, especially when you're, I mean, I'm talking for my own self, like someone who wants to have a career in higher ed, it's a really tough space to navigate because you're like, I want to hold you accountable. I want to still be an organizer. I still want to do this, but also what happens to my career? And Liz, you've, you've mentioned this in your thesis. So can you tell us about that piece? <laughs> yeah, um, even now uh, navigating this as a new adjunct professor, I'm now finding myself censoring my, my social media. I think a hundred times now before sharing a post. Um, I'm actually gonna be on a panel coming up soon and someone found, I put, you know, professor of LGBTQ studies cause that's what I am. And someone got very upset and wrote in a complaint uh, calling me a liar because adjuncts are not professors. We're le only lecturers. We're part-time, we're temporary educators. And so adjuncts should not be using the term professor. And so it's like this, We so there's this type of policing that's happening within academia and it happens in every single space. And that's what's getting scary. So um, so some of these participants are telling me stories, like the one of the first stories uh, and the findings you know, she's talking about, you know, they're trying to uh, stand up for DACA, for, uh, for students on DACA, undocumented students, and the university president sits with them and yells at them. This university president is not a white man. Um, and again, a lot of these stories where folks are like, they're so confused, they're just like, okay, if I push back, especially if you're an ASI in student government, you need a relationship with this person. You want, if you want more funding, if you need things from the university, you have to keep in mind like your relationship. Um, and so it's like all of us, all of us in academia, we're all constantly rationalizing, but at the root cause of it is this, um, these positions of these systems of power, you know, white, hetero, um, ableist, you know, systems that are forcing us to sit there and be like, if I make this decision, I know I'll be punished. 
at my core value, I want to get up and scream. But then I can lose something in that process. And a lot of us, when we're in school, they're teaching us to resume build. They're teaching us to, you know, one of the participants, one of the most amazing things she she said, I mean, it was all a wonderful interview, but what always stuck with me ever since, she's all like, she's like, you know, as a Latina, how it, why do I have to compete with other Latinas? And we're talking about um, uh, honor societies. So are we teaching each other that in order to be an acceptable Latina, you have to have a certain GPA, you have to um, be on a board, you have to be honorable and have certain status to be recognized. So what is that, what kind of message does that send to other Latinas? Uh, same thing for me when I was in the sociology club, we had an honor, uh, sociology honor society. In order to be in that honor society, same thing, special requirements, and you had to as, as, ascribe to a certain way of being which meant we are the better sociologists while the other sociologists suck. And so we're, we're all being taught to act this way and that ends up impacting our organizing. It impacts how we help the communities we're passionate about because we're sitting there always rationalizing, if I, if I do this, that means I'm not part of the, the honorable you know, culture, that I, the respectability part, right? If I resist that, then I'm gonna be pushed out. And we've seen people you know, what happens? What happens when you get pushed out? And that was other aspects of my research was that, including myself, I was threatened to be kicked out of school twice. A lot of these students were pulled into rooms. Um, they were, uh, they would cl- uh, close the doors on these students, threaten them. They were sending them notices saying, if you do A, B, and C, you'll get kicked out. Um, one, of the re- one of the things that happened to me was when Milo Yiannopoulos came to our campus, which is a white supremacist speaker of the diversity center, diversity center, uh, was sending in emails citing that I was trying, or uh, she was stating that I was trying to cite a, a riot and trying to get me in trouble. When in fact, SQ was trying to organize a peaceful counter event with music and food and things like that. As well, a lot of these uh, coordinators were pushing back, you know, against us having a counter event, or they'd be like low key, like, "Hey, I'm with you," but they would say, "But I'm contracted with." Mildred Garcia, the president, and I can't help you. And that was just so weird. It was just like, wait, but this is diversity center. What the hell? But they were thinking about their jobs. So that like, it's just, there's so much to unpack. It's like from being a student, a club president, student government, faculty, admin. I heard admin saying that they feel threatened, that if they speak up, they're gonna lose their job. So it's like, damn, like, where are we going with this whole diversity thing? Where, where are we going with, so what are we doing with ethnic studies? What direction are we heading in? Because if this is where we're heading, what is it all for? So that's what's getting scary and it's hard to talk about these things. Yeah, and I think it's it's been interesting because when I was doing a job, um, I was job searching this semester, it was interesting because there was one women's studies coordinator. I was just looking at the job descriptions just to see and one of the job description lines was that they're supposed to observe any student demonstration or protest. Like they were supposed to be part of their job was to go in and make sure that students were were okay. But really, it's like this, you know, this hyper vigilance of student activism where you can now, you know, use certain positions on campus to then start, you know using systems within supposedly masked as a support system, but then who do you trust that person who's going to out you out to the administration 
and put you in danger uh, and jeopardize you earning your degree. Definitely, like um, they'll wear the little yellow vest and they'll go out and they're like, they're they're basically narcs in a sense, like that's what they're there to do. But it's again, uh, how do we start addressing like, dang, these are people who we identify. So it's just, it's a lot of mixed messaging. Um, and this is something like, uh, so I'm, I'm biracial and I talk about, you know, this constant like, feeling lost. And I feel like in academia, a lot of us are starting to feel that way too. So it's like, um, I don't, I feel like I don't belong with one group. I don't feel like I belong with another. I just feel totally lost. So I feel like in organizing uh, and higher education, we're all kind of feeling lost where it's like, if I don't assimilate to this idea of what a good, um, you know, um, what a good student or administrator or faculty member is, if I don't support student affairs version of diversity, then I'm kind of just lost feeling like a reject. But it's, and I don't know what the answer is unless we all start talking about it. And that's why I wrote what I wrote about. I, it breaks my heart when I reflect on like these stories and things that I experienced, I witnessed. Like there was, there were things I purposely left out of the thesis because I was scared. Um, there are st students who told stories about sexual harassment from an administrator. Even me saying this, like, it's like, People are going to want to know who, and it's, and it's just, it's just scary. Cause it's like, you, it's like that me too one, right? You know, if you stand up, you're going to be like, all right, we're here to judge you. Tell us, to, give us proof. That's a big thing. And with research, especially um, ethnography, our proof is within the stories. We don't always have receipts. The receipt we have is someone's personal narrative. And so we do our best to compile this information, look for patterns and to tell the story. But what happens when it's exposing all these people who say they support diversity are actually being violent. And then if I share all the stories, it's scary. Like I, too many students were threatened. Um, students tell me stories of like one particular student after they graduated, they applied to work on campus and they were told straight up, we will not give you that job because of what you did in the past. And all they were doing was organizing is like, but it was too radical. Just, it's, yeah, it's very scary. I can imagine that whole process being very scary and very um, challenging to pick and choose what stories you would include, right? Um, because it would become permanent, right? But also, yeah, it's a thin line. I guess in, in discussing your thesis, what are some highlights that you found the most interesting when studying why college students join and build resistance movements on college campuses? So for me, it was about how they were able to face these like complexities again of these intersections coming together. Um, that is really hard when you say we all want to fight the tuition increase you have to go to all these clubs and like, and, you know, get people on the same page. And some people, again, respectability goes back to like, we heard this all the time. SQE is a bunch of loud mouths. SQE are a bunch of like these, they're too much. They're too much. They need to do it the right way. We heard that so often. So oftentimes clubs would be scared to work with us. So we had to do this, you know, consciousness raising. And that's what I, I really uh, amplified in the, in the research is like how these students, who are hardcore, who didn't care about, like they were sacrificing. They would sacrifice status, sleep, their grades, because um, they believed in the in this uh, uh, what is that, this um, in this movement. They believed in the movement, so they're willing to sacrifice everything. And so they would go around having these tough conversations, and sometimes getting ripped apart, finding really great allies. Um, 
And sometimes these these things would turn to like thousands of people showing up at the Capitol to protest. And then some days it was just like, you know, five or six people holding signs trying to spread awareness on something. And I think that I really try to highlight that part because like while I was trying to reveal a dark side uh, when it comes to the administrators and a reality of like the dangers of student affairs and this whole neoliberal um, diversity, commodification of diversity, like they're trying to pitch us something and it's really bad. At the same time, there are these amazing students who are resisting that. And I didn't want to just tell a story about the complications of it. I wanted to show the success as well. And so they were able to come together by making themselves vulnerable and telling, once they start opening up about these stories, I'll never forget um, this one student who was an ASI president connecting with student activists, telling you know her story about how an admin grabbed her and you know uh, closed her in on a room and when other students started saying, oh, me too. And this happened, at, I remember at CSSA, I was like sharing some of my work and suddenly I asked the audience, I said, oh, like, has anyone else experienced this? Boom, a bunch of hands went up. And I was like, how many students are being threatened and, and physically grabbed? Oh, that's the power of storytelling brought them together and they, they would do their best. So they got through it. They got through it, even though, like, again, a lot of, like, it takes a lot to organize, and it's complicated. Everyone wants to highlight, like, oh, if you want to partner with us, we want to highlight this. So if you, you know, you got to negotiate. But somehow these students did it with all the pressures that they were facing. So I thought that was absolutely beautiful, and I always want to, like, make sure people know about that. How does this relate to the current movements we see today? So now, um, again, those complexities haven't disappeared. So my partner and I, we went to the recent protests that have been happening in our local area. So we went to Santana and in Orange County. And, you know, these people would make a flyer, but it wasn't like, from what we could tell, it wasn't really being organized by one group. It just seemed like, hey, like committee members, let's just show up at this spot and let's just protest. And then on one particular night, my partner and I were there, were there street medics because we saw like things that were going down. So we brought, uh, you know, everything that we possibly could, like first aid, milk, water, um, and food, mask as well. And one particular night though, we saw like, so we basically were on a main street and the cops were, they pushed both, they split up the group. So you had one group on one side and we were on another and we noticed like, dang, it's a lot of youth. We're surrounded by youth. So we were being more observant than participators. Um, we wanted to make sure we got resources to people, but also just kind of like look out because it seemed like high school kids are very young adults. No one main group that meant there was no like real, like um, identified leader or leaders. It was kind of, they had to figure out for themselves and mistakes were being made. Um, so a megaphone popped out of nowhere and some guy, he's kind of like, you know, he takes it on. He's like, okay, I'll, yeah, I'll speak, I'll speak. And he's, some in his language, he's using derogatory terms. So to call, he was using the F word, uh, a gay slur uh, towards the cops. It's like, oh, you know, F the pigs, F them, F word. And someone yelled at that guy, like, hey, stop. Like, you know, there's queer people here. Like, what are you doing? And on the megaphone, he apologized. He's like, oh, you know, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And then again, he says the N word, but not, like, he's, it's like, you know, with the A, like the whole, like, he's trying to like be cool. But someone else like, bro, what are you doing? He's like, and this person is non-black. And so he's just like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So he apologizes on the megaphone. And that was what's interesting was that like, 
they identified like, hey, bro, you're messing up. But he would apologize, make he be vulnerable and apologize on the mic. And everyone's like, okay, you're good. You're good. Keep going. Keep going. You're doing Because people also saw how powerful he was on the megaphone. And then someone else said, oh, all lives matter. And the group, this young group had to decide how they reacted. And so it's like organically people showed up like, wait, wait, let's not fight. Let's not fight. That's what they want us to do. And so there was just like these things happening in the midst. So it's hard, right? Like I think people romanticize social justice work. It's absolutely romanticized. So much goes into the work itself. And it's even harder when it's organic. These people just showed up. This megaphone just showed up. Street medics randomly showed up. And we all had to figure out how to coexist for something that we believed in, to supporting Black lives, to calling out anti-Blackness. So I'm hoping we can continue that conversation because what I learned from these students in this period of time that I did these interviews and observations was like, thing a really messed up system. But as they were fighting that system, they're also dealing with the complexities of working in a coalition of, a, of diverse people who have their own histories. And all these people want to be heard and need resources. And it feels we often compete for them. Thus, we kind of feel like we're at each other. But if we can start being more vulnerable and facing that and having conversations, we can, I think that's what I could take from these students from CSU is like, Okay, now in these current movements, we see more and more people coming together and we have to have a dialogue. Like, what does that mean we say justice for Palestine during a Black Lives Matter movement? What's the same when it says the, all Black Lives Matter, you know, for trans Black women who want to be heard? Um, what is, a, I, I know, there was, I, there was one protest where they had a, a, a flyer that said, I can't breathe, that chant was only for Black protesters in this one area. But if you went to another city, the black uh, leaders were saying, no, everyone chant. And so we tell my partner and I, what we do is when we're doing these workshops on social justice moves, we say, you need to follow whatever is happening in that area. And a lot of people don't realize that's what goes into organizing. They think it's just, I'm going to show up with a sign and take my selfie. And it's like, no, there's social, co- there's social codes. There's social justice codes and they change from room to room to room. And that's where I learned all this from this work I did in this thesis and my work at CSU and SQE. Yeah, and I think what's missing a lot of these times in terms of social justice organizing is really the vulnerability that you actually, you know, huge vulnerability from the part of the person being involved. Like in terms of social justice, if you really want to start the healing process, you have to be vulnerable. And I think that's the hardest part is telling your story, is screwing up and apologizing. It's being humble enough to know that you don't know enough and you'll never know a lot. So, you know, th- that's why a lot of people still, I don't know for what reason they're still using woke, especially the white folks. Um, but it's, it's about like, yeah. you're constantly unlearning and learning new things. And that takes a lot of huge skill level and humility that I think a lot of scholars, especially people who write social justice as their own, portfolio their own career builder it takes such a beautiful level of mixture of all of these things and knowing how to work with teams and knowing when to step in and step out like there's so many things that you have to know ahead of time to be like you know what when I'm going into these spaces it's our space not my space it's it's a collective you know work in construction organically of all these different people that sometimes you know knowing that and it's, and it's also you being willing to reflect on your own positionality in these spaces. 
And I think a lot of people are not ready for that conversation and understand that it's not it's not glamorous at all. When you're actually doing it, it's it it, it doesn't feel really great. Definitely. I've been called out plenty of times. Um, and that, that's part of the, the learning process of doing this kind of work. Like you and you should welcome it. And it's about growing and changing behavior. But of course, you know, we all a lot of us lead with ego. And that goes back to because that's what we're taught. It's like, well, prove yourself in the system. Prove this, prove yourself. You know how, again, those honor societies, prove yourself. So we're constantly trying to prove ourselves and not stepping back and being quiet and listening. And so, and I definitely, you reminded me, I had, I wanted to highlight a couple of things like about, you know, call outs it's, and transformative justice. It's like, I'll never forget like when I start questioning academia as a scholar and I, so my undergrad, I did research and I was analyzing uh, gender identities within skateboarding culture. And I, so I interviewed like, you know, uh, folks who identify as trans, transgender, queer, but cis women, anyone that wasn't identified as a cis man. And so this competition and I was uh, elected among 10 students from my campus and we got sent to a hotel and competition. And I'm sitting on that bed with my gift card and my, this huge gift bag. And I'm like, damn, I'm here because of other people's oppression. This degree because there's these group of people in skateboarding culture that are poor as hell, who can't get sponsorships, who have to lie about their gender identity so they can keep a sponsor. Um, you bank, not bank, but I'm capital. I'm getting social capital and a gift card because I wrote about them. And I felt so mad guilty. And that's why I started questioning, you know, what, what does it mean to be a scholar? And then when it comes to call out culture, it's like, it's hard when we can't call people, everyone in. I wish we can have like a healing circle for every person we found problematic. But what happened, like, is a, is the chancellor of the CSU system gonna sit with me like, with, and have a healing meeting? No, he is not gonna meet with me or any other group every week to talk about how he needs to deconstruct himself. Like, so call out is necessary when you think about positions um, of power. Social justice spaces, we tend to not reflect on that either, where it's like, this is a fellow community member, can I call them in? And we have, you know, maybe that's more possible. But I just, I get mad with people who, I think Obama, didn't was he, he was critical of call out culture. And it was like, well, it's also a powerful tool depending on the person in power. Like, like Donald Trump, is, is he gonna sit with us and heal? No, it's never gonna happen. So we have to definitely continue to call out and be aggressive in some other ways. And the same thing with scholars, like, um, I don't know how we're going to change. I don't know. Like, how does that look? How do we start changing um, what it means to be a scholar? Um, can we have scholarly activism? Can we deconstruct what, who can be a scholar? Like, it's all of that needs to be addressed, and it's scary to address it. Yeah, and then to actually really you know, start being critical about, you know, who is able to do what kind of research. Um, and, and to think about like all the complexities within that, because I'm like, then we start going into policing, you know, like doing the same thing that we're saying that we don't like when they do it to us. So I think it's important to really distinct it in terms of call out and call in for me personally, it's so much easier to call into someone that I already have a relationship and community with. You can't do that into someone who is doing a lot of harm and has a position of power over you. That doesn't happen because that's why, I mean, even in my own master's program or even in any leadership, they always do this thing where they call each other family 
and they start, you know, doing the same behaviors, toxic behaviors that we do actually have in our own families, biological or the people that we grew up with. And then it's harder to call you out on things or even call you in because there's this in disguise of, oh, well, we have this relationship. So I think it's so important to not, you know, undermine the actual power that call outs do actually have. Because if you think about what has been happening this summer, it has based like none of it happened. None of this change happened because bureaucratically someone put a petition and did all the right things. It was through all this <laughs> noise that was happening that, you know, each one of us was playing our own role. But I think it was important to note that it was those ground level like leaders day in and day out doing this work. Yeah. And, and, and it's like with like a student government, it's like I get even more scared for those folks. So the reason why I want to like I would love to write a book about this one day and collaborate with others. This is a place where these students learn behaviors and then they take it with them when they move on to the next step, which, which a lot of them end up going into local politics or they start because of their position, they tend to move into like, it's just like, just again, they take these behaviors, everything they learned and they just move it somewhere else. It's like, how can we deconstruct these spaces um, like student government? Um, I'll never forget one of the biggest one of the biggest regrets I have when it comes to student government is when I first first got in um, or I was campaigning to, to be elected in so it was my, like my first time like attending meetings and stuff like that and the current God, it's so hard because I don't want people to find out <laughs> it's okay it's just like there was someone in a position of power that was a student and told another student who wanted a position if you have sex with me I'll give you the job we're students, we're students, like what the hell? This is like, I think like, I picture the White House and this kind of crap, right? And or it happens somewhere else, it doesn't happen here. And I'm just saying like, what the hell? And everyone heard the story. None of us reported it. Like none of, and why, and I can just answer for me, why didn't I? Well, because I was looking to my peers. I was like, well, if I do it, like I don't, again, that rationalization and considering my positionality, like if I speak up, am I gonna get in trouble? Now, let's just say it was a rumor. Let's say it was real or it was like, you know, like, but what I focus on is the fact that there was a rumor going around and none of us said anything about it. It was more like just live it alone, hush, hush. And that happened though, like those kind of situations were happening throughout student government. Again, like what you're highlighting about like the student activists showing up and like some of these representatives were so mean. They were so mean. And like, I was just like, damn, these are students. I don't know if you're like how like the parties going to CSSA and all these the hotel parties. Like I wish people would see like students' money. Like all of us pay a fee for our student government, and also CSSA. Even though you could technically opt out, still people pay into it because they don't know. And the way they acted at these parties, I was just like mind blown. Sometimes I was just like, how is it you all claim? that we're a family, you know, we represent the students, we're, we're here, we're diversity, we're all here to support. And there was just messed up things happening behind the scenes. And like, I know someone can say like, oh, I'm a rat. Like I wrote a whole thing about it cause I'm a rat. But at the same time, like these are students who are relying on you and your support and they're putting money into this. And the history of it, like student government used to be about a student union. It was about radicalism against an institution of administrators. But then we got sucked into it. 
And it's just so hard. But then again, I go back to, well, why are these student leaders acting this way? Well, because they're trying to survive too. They want a job afterwards. They want, you know, to move on and like graduate. So I feel bad for like, okay, why? So again, why didn't I report it? Because I sat there and rationalized. I thought about my next steps and I regret that. And I'll always own up to that. And that's what's hard. Yeah. And I think it's, and it's also the professionalization. (laughs) that is created within student government in the microcosm and like just like the small environment that student government has. And a lot of people bash on it. They're like, oh, that's not like, you don't really get to do much. But I'm like, this is a corporation really that has millions of dollars that they use from student fees to decide where each money is gonna go to, regardless of how small people may think that these roles are, it is a huge, you know, professional, stepping stone for a lot of people and a lot of the times it is reflective of our own bigger systems where a lot of these things happen like why don't we all report it i mean on top of that like it's a lot of i mean i've been in a position where i I was this close and reporting something because of my work um, experience in higher ed and i didn't because i'm like just to be re-traumatized in order to say it all over again and then be gaslighted by all these people and knowing that HR was friends with all these people and in connection with all these people that they were trying to protect, HR doesn't function really, I mean, not only to to protect the institution, but it's also in itself, the, the systems that they have and the procedures aren't made in a, in a lens to actually help the person who is at the other side who is the victim. And so I think it, it's, a, it's a huge task for someone to have to retell, recount, and then be told, well, that's not evidence enough. It didn't happen in this way for us to do anything about it. So it's not your fault to, to start thinking about, well, you know what, why am I, I'm like, well, because you've been traumatized in the way that the system works, that you're just like, I don't wanna have to go through this whole process again and also jeopardize me getting my degree at the end of the day, that's the hard part. That's really a shitty like position to put you in and many other students to have to think about all these things and the consequences, like that sucks. Yeah, lawsuits is actually a huge thing, um, uh, not just for student leaders in AS uh, or CSA, but also student activists. Uh, admin will and HR will use things against you. Even though you're trying to fight for justice, you're trying to tell your truth you're trying to speak up about being harassed. And if that particular admin or staff member or even student leader, um, especially if they're from Greek life, if there's someone that needs to be protected, like, you know, this institution will threaten the victim instead. And uh, I remember I came close, they almost wanted me to sign an NDA because of something that happened between me and another student leader. Um, and, you know, a lot of students, we get, like when they do these campaigns, Students get used. I hate campaign season in ASI. <laughs> I love it and hate it because I, I, I believe in a student union, but it's so weird how these student leaders will suddenly show up to all these like club meetings and be like, I'm your best friend. I care about you, even though we've never seen them before. And, they'll, and so that happened to SQE and someone did take advantage of us. And so there was like a lot of back and forth. And once these students get elected in, they'll use that position of power. They'll report you to the admin and claim, oh, these student activists are harassing us. I saw that so many times. And SQ is constantly accused of harassment, even though they're just going to public comment. They're just like, 
they're yeah they're, they're they're raising their voices but so what why are you tone policing um but and then like uh but the some of these student leaders will also be threatened with uh lawsuits as well so one particular story um that is that they were trying to you know student leaders and as were trying to have some kind of initiative and they were told that if you speak up if you do this um the university will destroy well not they use the word destroy but they say we'll remove asi and we're going to sue you decided to go against what the university president wanted so this student no 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 never mind never mind they, they, they want to graduate they want to move on because the uh, the university will have admins sit on the board with them these admin will influence the staff members thus influencing the students and one time where i was so shocked by one of these stories the staff member they have lawyers so each asi has a lawyer and the lawyer went in and said even though you were elected by the students you work for the corporation you work for the university and like this is quoted in my thesis and i was just like the as lawyer saying elections are bs did you just say this in front of like all these students and 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 he did and so it was just like it, it's like i'm right now i feel like i'm like so stoned right now i took a acid tab and i'm just like what is like what the hell is it like, it seems like everyone's your enemy yet you see all these posters of student success diversity graduation rates um first generation college student we love you the shit out of you as well and that's what's so confusing and i think it, it's been interesting to see i mean i would challenge anyone who doesn't really believe in any of this to like go against the grain and see what kind of response you have back and see and and a lot of people already intuit intuitively actually know this because they why is it that you're even hesitating in either saying something or staying quiet and it's interesting because it, it's happened to me where people are so used to like oh well you say things you know like well you should call it out and i'm like but you don't understand that for a lot of these student organizers we also want peace we also want and it's like if more of us would say something then it wouldn't be targeted just to us it would be actually more people saying something about this because it's wild to me to think once i started going to, into student government to start seeing how csu system wide like because i was in in sonoma state it was very white and to see how the system wide like how much diversity we have it's it's interesting that i'm like we're still thinking and feeling all these things yet still be told that we don't have the power to change this which is interesting in conjunction to student um assistance and, and grad student assistance at the uc level with cola and their student movements right now and their surveillance that they're going through with police uh, from the university police not really like like that is wild to me to see all of this moving in real time and to thinking that we have 23 campuses yet we haven't been able to coalition and organize in a way that the way that you, the uc system has um coalition building is so hard and especially when you have people graduating and moving on that's what's so hard about this like um you consciousness raising is like an ongoing thing in it and you have to emotionally dedicate and as i mentioned these students i interviewed they sacrifice they sacrifice the grades for the sake of the movement um not a lot of students are 
And when I say not willing, again, it's because they're rationalizing. They understand, like, they're with the students most of the time. They agree with them. They're in, they share values, but they need to graduate, right? And it's, you know, and then also recognizing that students have to work and they're also parents, things like that. So that's what, it makes it hard for us. What I wish would happen is that in the past happened to that faculty student relationship say is what happened is outnumbered you have oh, part teachers means they're all working at different campuses they don't have time to have relationships or to advocate for students and then your full-time um tenure faculty members are working on their research um and they're also applied on or uh, put on all kinds of committees so who's there to nurture these students and their ideas well, these diversity centers who get contracted by the you know the president um, and their uh, you know their board and cabinet and whatnot, and um, I forget the percentage, but it's like like they the admin and CSU like outnumber within the hundred like a, like three hundred percent within like a matter of like of a decade, and it was like well what's how does that culturally impact these students and their organizing. Well, they're trying to push them more into, again, these respectable roles, civic engagement, doing it the right way. So there's a lot working against us when it comes to how do we as students collectively say, we're done. Like, what? imagine what would happen if we all walked out. Like, and I'm sure that's something we say about everything, right? Imagine if we all got up and said, F this and walked out. But what? why don't we make sure that I have to go to work? The system makes sure that I'm scared to not graduate. The system makes sure makes sure that I will keep so much working against us. And so it's hard. Like, how can we get up and do something? Because it's needed. Like, and the UCs, I don't know. We need to look at the UCs, too. And I, I'm so interested to explore that. Um, I'm not going to say, like, they're, well, I don't want to say they're better. But their history is different. Um, so when I was doing this thesis, my, the, the faculty who were, um, um, mentoring me through this process, they're telling me that the CSU is known to create workers years. The CSU creates workers, they, you know, businesses, like how can we continue to make revenue, make money? And they kind of build those kind of types of students. Well, the UCs are like, how can you critically challenge a system? And there's like more faculty working with students in, the, in that capacity there, at least historically. So that's something maybe, again, going back to, can we work with faculty again and to have uprises and to have walkouts and do all that again like they did in the 60s? That's what I would hope so. Yeah, um, there's a book that I can't remember the name right now, but it talks about the, the history of the California state systems. I don't know if any of you have read it, but... I'm, it's, it's, um, I'll try to remember the name, but anyways, um, well, I, um, I'll go on to the next question. Uh, what did it feel like to conduct the interviews and hear all the, the testimonies of the student activists? When in my program, I felt very rejected taking the route of autoethnography. Um, ethnography is that we want to put ourselves within the community and culture of the population that we're observing in and doing a whole, um, research doing a research project on autoethnography goes deeper into saying well as researchers we're biased we can pretend all day long that we check our bias but no we are biased if you have an interest in a topic you're already biased because of how you're interested in that group um so that's what i like about autoethnography it's like well let's let's be open about our bias and so i was able to about that that process that these people um you know, the, 
you know, how I picked my sampling was like, it, it was people I knew and people I organized with. So it wasn't random. It wasn't just like, you know, I was, it was, everything was on purpose because there was something, I identified a huge issue and I knew people who had stories to tell. So it was personal and the personal is political. And that's, and as researchers, we should embrace that more. That's why I love qualitative research. I love ethnography. I love autoethnography. And again, I think we try to scare young scholars to not do that kind of work. I know we scare them to think like, oh, if you have bias, you're bad. No, I think we should embrace that um, and make ourselves vulnerable. So while it was very poetic in a way to do this, um, and I was so glad that I was able to express and reflect honestly in my thesis, it was also hard again, right? I, had, I still had to rationalize how much I told of a story. I, I, was, I, was, I was still the gatekeeper of information, even though like, I'm, what I did was that once I typed up everything, I sent it back to the participants and I, you know, have conversations with them and they would want to, um, they edit, they would edit like what they said because they wanted to make sure they knew this was their one chance to be heard possibly. So instead of being like, oh, um, and this happened and then this happened. No, I gave them full control of what I recorded, what I documented, and they got to edit what they wanted to say. Oh, it was totally clear. Um, so as much as it was a collaborative process, I was still a gatekeeper though. And that's what was really hard is like, again, like I mentioned, I didn't share everything. Not, I mean, my own observations, there's things missing. So I think that work and do things like this where I can have conversations. Um, Cause that's went through and the people who weren't even researched, right? Like, I mean, um, interviewed, I, there was a lot of students. These 10 students I interviewed were 10 of like hundreds. Again, when I went and did and did presentations on my work, I had a bunch of students in the audience raising their hands saying me too. So I just want, I just hope to continue doing this work so I can open the gate up more and encourage more people to do this research. Like what student, people think student government is stupid. They think student activism is just like a stepping stone to real activism. And it's not the case. Again, this is where students learn bad behaviors, where they have bad experiences and they just re the, um, that cycle just continues. And that's where you get like the future Donald Trump's of the world, you know, like, um, and that's, that's what just was hard. It was hard to be so excited to tell these stories, to collaborate and be honest about my positionality, but then also know that I was still a gatekeeper in this. And I just hope to continue revealing the, the again, the dark side of academia. Yeah. And I wanted to read this <laughs> quote that you had in your thesis that I found really interesting. Um, to summarize basically what you what you wrote in a whole big chapters in your thesis. So the study's findings show how storytelling became a significant factor in the development of a student's collective identity and their willingness to address university injustice. Yet students were often put in a position of choosing between their moral values and academic success by administrators that aimed to dissuade student activism. Administrators used authoritative tactics to intimidate students while also relying upon marketing strategies to alienate radical activism. The students in the study identify the CSU as a corporatized university, don't know how to say that word, um, that strategically works to avoid accountability. As a result, the participants of this study all share that their experiences led to stress, mental health anguish, and fear. 
In addition to emotional stress, the participants also revealed how their activism either led to materialistic and economic loss or the threat of their loss. However, the discussion and conclusion of the study show how these students were able to persist and continue in their efforts towards justice and student empowerment, even when faced with institutional pressure and social barriers. So I wanted to ask you, because I've been seeing so many universities make anti-racist statements. So could you tell us your reaction to hearing and seeing, especially since you interviewed a bunch of student activists and you're kind of engaging in all this reactionary thing about these, you know, Black Lives Matter protests this summer. What has been your intake on this? I am so questionable and I don't trust these statements of actually in support of. And so it's like, oh, we support Black Lives. Where at Cal State Fullerton, just last, um, last academic school year, uh, black student union um, made a list of demands because you know there was a black faculty they were losing recognizing their positionality at our university and had demands and our university president didn't want to budge on a lot of these things um and we came to ethics studies the demand for ethics studies literally our university president said like well if we make it a requirement it means we're discriminating against gender studies and lgbtq studies so then he tried to like pin us against each other so it was but then one year later when suddenly it's cool to um to be more inclusive and to support black lives he made a long letter like so long saying how much he supports it but i i believe a lot of it is show and tell i because for so long it's already been happening um you know commodifying diversity is a very real thing they don't care they don't um, all they want you to do is assimilate and help them get more money. You know, we do have issues with not getting funding from the state anymore. So these people, our administrators and our presidents have to get really creative in how they pull more money in. Rich, snobby, you know, white culture people, like um, whiteness. And that if we're getting money from the culture of whiteness, then that is going to impact the culture of our university and what we stand for, especially the admin. So I, um, and then shows for nonprofits as well. Yet they're claiming that they support these things. So this happens everywhere. We're talking about the commodification of diversity. We need to talk about the realities of private donations and funding and the culture, how it shifts the culture. Um, I, one another good example when on our university was that, I don't know how it is for Sonoma or other campuses, but diversity centers, you know, the African-American Resource Center, the Chicano uh, Center, um, Swana Center, LGBTQ Center, they're separated. And for some people like myself, we believe that's in a way good, can be good because it brings agency. And some of these orgs were more connected with the faculty. When you force all these centers into one melting pot, and then hire coordinators to oversee them and kind of remove the faculty aspect of it. What you're doing is like you're trying, you're forcing these people to start believing in one way of doing something. I mean, like, oh, well, no, it's good that we're all together. It's good that we have intersectionality. It's good that we have diversity all in one space so we can work together. But behind that, there were students protesting against that because they wanted to keep the agency. They wanted to have these places have their like own spot. So an admin came up to me specifically and said, 
Liz, I know what y'all are saying, but it's not going to happen. We're going to force intersectionality. It's profitable. It's profitable because they got to take pictures. They got to take pictures of all the students in one spot and they get to promote the story of one and, a, and we're all working together. And then slowly students are buying into this idea. Oh, we can't be more critical of these new like anti-racism like approaches and who's saying it, but we need to be critical because we need to look back at their history. It's to me, it's BS. It's BS until we get more faculty of color, uh, more queer uh, uh, faculty, more students with the same backgrounds, um, the funding coming from different places, um, less admin, more teachers. Like until we see action, those letters mean nothing at this point. And same thing for nonprofits and all the other places, in corporations. If it's Starbucks, right? Starbucks is like, oh, we're pro diversity, and they're always making mistakes. Completely agree. Um, and then the, the last question that I will pose is, what is the role you've seen admin partake in response to student activism? What are your recommendations for universities in serving student organizers? It's hard because like a lot of these people who get the coordinator positions are people who, it could be me. I could apply for one of these jobs and with my background and my degree, I would be qualified for it. So that means I'm work, but it's like, I think it's about accountability and it's so hard because I feel like I'm buying into this idea of what they're already doing. So student affairs, they'll have accountability committees and, oh, how we do oversight. And it's just, it's hard. It's what there is right now. Uh, when they got elected a stipend, they get a stipend and some of these students would get up to like $40,000 for some campuses. And yet they wouldn't do anything like for an entire year. They would go to say, say, get drunk in the, you know, at the hotel parties, not show up for the meeting the next day, but still collect that stipend and that up to really hold that person accountable. What is that? So it's like, I guess, like, can we do these committees? Do we have like, you know, with, does that mean we have to dismantle HR like and redo HR? Does it? So that's where I get I don't know. All I know is that we have to start having these discussions. Because what happens too, like if we start getting rid of all these staff jobs, how many people are going to lose their jobs? Because there are amazing people who are staff, um, who are working with these groups and they're doing their best in the situation they're in. Again, and they're also rationalizing. If they speak up too much, are they going to get fired? And it's just, you know, so, you know, um, there's one person of mine who's an amazing Chicano who comes from Mecca, who's been doing this work for so long and she works, she's a staff member and admin now. So it's like, I think it's what I would say, let's keep having these discussions more publicly, like these students in the research. Let's, um, let's do these workshops. Let's, let's go to AS, let's go to clubs and start saying, hey, like, let's start talking about di commodification of diversity, what that means. How does it have an impact on us? I think students are being fed uh, a different type of, or they're being fed corporate diversity. So how do we bring more grassroots social justice back into the conversation of like, no, let's talk about like where diverse, this term diversity came from and who controls that narrative. So I guess what it comes down to is education. I think it's about supporting ethnic studies. It's about supporting queer studies. Um, there's even people talking about disability studies, you know, and look at the civil rights movement, how these, how these disciplines came to be and getting more students involved in that. And I guess so the more knowledge they have, um, I would hope that they would go and change up these institutions that exist right now. Whether it's reform or abolish, I don't know, but 
we're not going to get anywhere without education. So I guess that's where I'm at right now is spreading the word. Yeah. And I think it's, it would be super interesting seeing if, because I always thought that especially navigating higher ed as, as a first gen and not knowing the histories of all these institutions and all this, like, I just got a, a copy from one of my colleagues at San Jose State right now about all these like events that have happened at San Jose State where back in World War II, they actually, they used the gym as a place where they process people, Asian people around the county, the Santa Clara County, to send them to internment camps. So like knowing the history of your campus and understanding like, what are some student activist, uh, community activism that has held? Like, what are some injustices that have happened? How was your institution involved in the oppression of your community, of other communities? And and in relation to that, and in, in, in a class where you can also help students transition into higher ed. So here's the history, and then here's how you navigate it. Like, that would be like, I mean, I think that would make too much sense. Um, for for a lot of people and they would put, you know, the power and the onus to the student to understand what that even means. A lot of, unfortunately, students who are really busy, who are super at the margins, um, don't have the opportunity to learn all these things, you know, and, and I love that, Liz, you brought up of like questioning who ends up, you know, getting to do research and getting to question and getting to, you know, time to process and write. Unfortunately for both of us, we were writing through COVID, but in, in, in how many of us don't get to write all these stories? The fact that your participants thought that this was the last opportunity to say these things, that's so unfortunate because we don't actually provide outlets where we can have these discussions and have more people understand what that means. If it weren't for SQE, I would have not known the story of the CSU. I would have thought that all the CSUs were the way that I experienced my CSU. And that's not true. And to end up connecting across the system to all these like student activism like yourself, like that has been really empowering and amazing to see that well and then sad because I'm like I'm not alone in this position, but it also it's so unfortunate that so many have to go through this process and later on find out, oh, that's how you're supposed to navigate it. Oh, that's that happens, you know, and, and we don't internalize this thinking that it was our fault. Like having all these Me Too moments, it's unfortunate that it was outside of higher ed that all these movements started and then we caught on and we're like, oh, now we can say something about it. Like that's the sad part that we have to like piggyback on outside community members, outside organizers, doing Me Too, doing anti-racist, you know, having conversations about defunding the police. Like everything is happening. I don't know what academics are doing, but everything is happening outside of academia. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's so important that history part, right? Because we can, if, we, if students knew what their campus has done in the past, then maybe they, they'll be like, okay, I can do it. Just like, oh, if one, if my peer tells their story, then maybe I can do it too. But again, we're all self-policing because we're in a system that's wanting us to be silent. Um, but you know, back in the day, San Francisco State is the only campus to still do this. Um, but ASI used to, um, they used to have classes. Uh, I forgive me, I can't remember the name. I can send it to y'all later, but you can look it up. Um, classes that had one, you got as one credit. 
And these classes were all social justice uh, based. And they, this was the norm back in the 70s. Um, and again, San Francisco State is the only uh, CSU left to do this. So, oh my gosh, can we do that again, right? It's like learning these things that we, what AS uh, used to do and how they used to work with other uh, clubs on campuses. And then even like during the fight for ethnic studies, Fresno State, their student government actually voted in favor of a boycott. And it was like, uh, it was like 12 to seven in the votes. And so student government said, we will not return to campus with all our, you know, all the other people working on that coalition campaign and, uh, until we get, Actually, it was like ethics studies and then faculty members were being um, fired for having uh, radical speeches on campus. And so, again, this little hit pockets of history. It's like, oh, dang, we, we can do those things. But again, because those admin are being hired and placed uh, very strategically on these boards where students exist, they're going to say, no, no, let, let's try. No, let's try another way. And th- I think that goes t- again, that problem, like, who do we get on the board? Uh, and that's what's hard it's so hard like I think it's important that we have uh, mentors sit on the board with these students but when you get the wrong mentor in there how do you get them out and then how do these students speak up against this mentor or this you know this position uh, this, this person sitting in this position on the board with them so that's what's hard is that we can teach them this history and we should but then how do you encourage these students to go against the system to be anti-normal, you know, to queer it up, you know, like how do you resist when you're in a position of being scared and for valid reasons? That's what I was going to add earlier and I it totally spaced out, um, but that you all have an advisor, right? That accompanies you during these meetings and who helps guide you. I mean, I don't know what their role, how involved they are, but I remember them going to a couple meetings and seeing them there. But to your point, Liz, if you get the wrong advisor, then how do you, what is that process like to make sure that you have someone that is supporting the students in the appropriate way? And imagine you have to do a homework assignment each night as well, <laughs> like doing this stuff. And that's what's hard. Because a lot of people tell us like, oh, I have 15 units, I have 20 units, and you want me to do what? And it's like, damn, like, and so it's really hard. And there's, again, so that goes back to there's so much working against us. Um, and then also providing the tools. So for what I've been doing is trying to encourage other ASIs to um, invite me for a workshop. And I'm trying to encourage other people to do this. I, I also say invite other grassroots organizers to come in and, and speak with you and to talk about what does it look like to de- reconstruct uh, an institutional organization. Because what happens every summer when these students are training for their new roles in student government or these clubs even, um, they'll bring in these speakers, but they're tied, they're admin. A lot of times they're admin. Or they're, you know, they're people especially contracted with the university to some degree. It's not, it's not someone from Black Lives Matter, that's for sure. Usually that never happens. Um, so I'm thinking if we can start bringing more outside people in to teach them, to give them skills, then these students might feel more empowered and have a resource. But most of the time, these students, they don't even know how, they don't even know how Robert's rules work until spring semester. And that works in the system's favor. I, shit, I didn't even know how, how Robert's rules worked until like later on, I was like, oh crap, okay. And then Gloria, and the Gloria Romero Act, all these like legal, um, all the legalities that you have to sit there and learn. And then on top of that, now we have to try and get rid of a board member. So I, I empathize with these students. I feel so bad because I was there as a student. And then I realized the pattern hasn't changed. They're so screwed over. 
So I think like, what, so how to help them like to address these admin, the wrong ones, the wrong mentors that come in, the wrong advisors, and how to help them empower and know they have resources. I think we have to get them during training, during that summertime, and have them bring in new speakers in and to give them real tools to really teach them any institution, even nonprofits, all that, how it's how they are working against you, but you are in a position to, to fight back. And that's what we're not teaching these students. And that's what I hope we can do. And I think it was important, you know, when I was a peer mentor, I actually went into classrooms, ethnic studies classrooms, and I started campaigning there. I'm like, these are my community. This is, I want you all to know about this and for more student government leaders to start bringing in student organizations and student groups or affinity groups that normally don't show up in student government. So I knew in my history, it's no mistake, there was always the frats and sororities that ended up running for government. And so my role was, okay, I need to get more of my friends in SQE and in EOP to start joining in certain of these things. Like, so it was my effort, and even to go into first-gen living, learning communities, into first-gen spaces, multicultural uh, clubs and student organizations where I went out of my way to start going into these classrooms, these spaces, to start even saying like, you don't have to run for office, but I want you to be aware that this is the procedure that happens. And we are the ones, here's the list of things that are on the table. This wouldn't have been happening if I didn't have two faculty members telling me how this all works, what meetings I was supposed to go to. Like I was being taught along the way and mentored. This is how this all works. And I think it's unfortunate that a lot of students don't have that mentorship. I mean, it's a lot of work, a lot of work um, to start putting all of this together. I mean, I was that one student with 16 units working three jobs and like, still showing up for some meetings, you know, like, or organizing at night with my friends. So that, that, that is what happens, but I just wish more students were able to just know the process so they can know how to like communicate. So you don't have to be as involved as I was or as many student government leaders or anything like that, but you at least should know who your representative is, who you can talk to and how you can also organize as a student and advocate for yourself because all you're doing is just letting these student leaders make all these decisions that are impacting you in some way or not talking about the things that are impacting you at the table. People don't realize how powerful student government is. Like they fund these multicultural organizations, these clubs, like they, they make scholarships, like they are a legitimate government that represents your campus, even on a statewide level. Uh, so many thousands of students just think it's like, oh, it's like high school student government. They're going to get us free pizza. <laughs> it's like, no, it's, it's, it's a legit government and lots of money is involved. Um, so and that it's it is it is hard when it's like, yeah, everything you mentioned, like I, I, I feel it. It's like you you're learning everything in the process. You're trying to do all this outreach. But then again, all that is working toward, against you. And then activism in itself is like you want these students to speak up for themselves. And they, I think they're just, there's intimidation involved. Again, Robert's rules, people, you show up to this meeting. One of these participants were saying, I show up to this meeting and it's so intimidating. You have like 30 students staring back at you all dressed up professionally. And they're talking like in this language that you don't understand. And then you get 30 seconds during public comment to tell your whole story. And I asked this participant, I said, how many times did they help you after public comment? And she said, zero. I said, how many times did you go? She said, 25 times, because she was working on this one campaign. She said, I went 25 times, and none of them were helping me out. And 
and like, so it's just like, it's just hard. It's hard. Like, so I'm so glad you had two faculty members, but what happens when you don't get that? And I know we can't really get really deep into it, but Greek life, what, that's a whole other thing. These, well, Greek life runs student government. Let's be real. It's like a mob. They run student government. And the problem with Greek life, again, we have more, um, there's more diversity in Greek life, but the, have the rules really changed? Has the culture really changed? Because the reality is I met some of these people who are in Greek life and they said the same things to me, just like the coordinators did in the diversity center. They said, hey, I'm with you. I support this campaign, but I'll get in trouble with my sorority if I speak up. And I was just there like, damn, and you're an elected student representative. So who's calling the shots, you or your sorority? Who's, who, who gets to decide what your vote is, you or your sorority? my heart and that's when you kind of have to think about the question what is the organization that you're part of and and an organization and even people that are able to support you fully and holistically don't put those power dynamics and power trips on you saying that you know if you do this you can get this this rewarding system that goes back into how we raise children to think in my support is only conditional if you do the things that I want you to do and be obedient to it. Like we do this with adults. And so always, I, I always tell students, I'm like, I don't really push people into Greek and sorority life. I'm like, that's, if you want to do that, you go ahead. But you know, there's lots of money. It's very exclusionary. It's a very tight knit club um, or mob really. Um, and so really, but it's it's hard to also, you know, engage other students into becoming involved in other things that would be to their benefit, that, you know, values them in all their ways and wants to see them grow. That's very hard to replicate in higher ed in, an inst- in, in a very systemic and institutionalized way where we actually can replicate that love and support to students in a way that doesn't really happen in the imagination of all these admin. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I, I just, I hope that we can get a po- to a point where we can be more supportive towards one another. Uh, so I sit here and I, yeah, I'm jaded towards student government. Again, like, to be honest about my positionality, my feelings and my work, I was jaded towards a lot of these people, especially CSSA, I was so jaded towards them people in it too and without these people participating in the research and giving me stories and connecting me with others like i this wouldn't all happen and so i know there's people who want this um and so we just got to figure out a way to like can we partner with greek life (laughs) can we find those good folks in there can we all these again like going back to that coalition we were talking about earlier it's just like how can we achieve that and actually act supportive to one another If anything, you've elevated their voices through your thesis, through your collecting of stories. You know, I think now anyone else who has the same goal to put, to analyze, to uh, call out people or the administration or the student organizations, they can use your work as a reference. You know, they can cite your all the work that you did and all the great uh, results and findings that you collected. And I just wanted to add, because I found the paper that I was trying to reference earlier, 
It's um, the Master Plan for Higher Education in California. Um, that was created. Yeah. So I don't know if you've heard of it. Oh, yeah, that's that's definitely like the foundation yeah. of what each system, the either the California Community College, the University of California, the uh, California uh, State University system, like it's the framework of each of them stating what their purpose is. I mean, it's it's discussed in um, a lot of masters of higher ed places. But what's interesting is that a lot of students don't know about that document or even know what it's supposed to do like it was supposed to be for the people for the for the for the opportunities of california residents to obtain a college degree a college education that doesn't always happen yeah as it's described here it says um that according to the literature surrounding it, the master plan was a defensive response to a set of challenges that threatened to upend California higher education, uh, rather than establishing truly universal access to higher education. It's, a, it's out to provide and limit college and university education to those with the capacity and willingness to, pro, to profit from by college instruction. So if anyone wants to check it out. <laughs> Yeah, and I think what's tough is like, um, so like the California Master Plan, like, yeah, and that was a huge thing, especially in SQ, we talk about it all the time. Um, but let's talk like, no, there's that, and then just resolutions in general and policies that are passed when it comes to education. We're relying on all these students to also having to read these things and then unpacking the language in it. So it's like, am I, and so it's like, I want to humanize them and like, okay, wait, we're also students. How the, like, I have to read a book and this, but at the same time, I guess it's like, well, yeah, right now, yes, that's the sacrifices we're going to have to make. But if, if more of us work together, it could be easier. And that's the problem. Like, so say like, again, student government, you got 20 of them on a board and they have the California master plan. Why don't they just say, okay, you'll read this section, you'll read this, this section, and then we'll have a meeting later and we'll teach each other, but they don't work together. I, and that, that's part I don't understand. Also with clubs too, like, Activism in general, we we're if we're poor and have all so much working against us, yes, it's hard to mobilize. But if we all picked up a spot on the spectrum of activism, one person makes a flyer, one person finds an article, we'll all meet up in Zoom later and we'll we'll collaborate. It could work. And that's the part where I'm lost on like we're again this coalition building collaboration, like burnout. It's like I don't know how to encourage people to work together to fight the system when we're all feeling so burnt out hard. It's very hard. And I think it would be really important for a lot more faculty to actually integrate, you know, this, you know, student activism, student mobilizing within each of our discipline and to really break it down for some students and be able to have a discussion about, I think that's what helped with those two faculty members I had, you know, mentoring me through the process they actually created a space on uh, during our classroom to talk about issues and really because every single field tries to question everything outside of themselves and never really internally analyze, you know, all these systems, all these experiences, all the things that we're teaching, we experience it. So we have to actually be more of an internal reflection on how we have experienced these things. What was the outcome of it? 
And why haven't, if we haven't experienced it, why is that? And to give the context of all these things, I think that was beautiful. And even those professors gave me a space to talk about the bullshit experience of starting a new club if you're trying to promote women of color going into grad school. Like we had so many things going against us. And so it was an opportunity for that faculty to say, well, let's create an assignment dedicated to questioning where is the funding going to and all these different clubs. You know, like that's something we have to start doing. Like either if it's not in our own institution, it's in our city county. If it's a project that we have to do, why are we presenting it at city hall? Why are we presenting it during a student government meeting? And yeah, so and I think maybe we should start talking to faculty about that because that's the approach I'm going to take. Uh, so I have created assignments where my students are going to have to do this project where they're going to pretend they're in a campaign and they have to reach out to different um, campus leaders and their local politicians and grassroots orgs. Uh, again, it's, it's all going to be like, you know, imaginary, but they're going to have to write it all down as if it was real. So what I'm doing essentially is trying to prepare them when they come up across an issue that they want to talk about and create a campaign around, they'll remember my class and be like, okay, I'll make sure to do these things. But our faculty doing that? No, I think, well, there are some, of course, I don't, I don't I'll have a bunch of emails coming to me like, I do it. Um, but I don't think it's as normal to see faculty do social justice projects. How do you apply the knowledge? Like, I feel like we're just encouraging knowledgeable careers like okay i'm gonna give you this information you gotta remember it and then you gotta get a good gpa so you can get that degree and get a you know we're not teaching them like to decode this assignment that you're gonna write on who would you contact if you wanted to do what would be your ask what would a list of demands look like and so i I, i'm hoping maybe in the humanities we can get more faculty to start being like including social justice and the how-tos in their curriculum because yeah as of now like I've, I've gone into now the world of local politics and I'm so intimidated by that. Damn, if I would have learned more about this in college, maybe things would be a little bit easier. Um, so I'm hoping, yeah, I'm hoping we do more social justice stuff in the classrooms. And doing it with your classmates. I think that was helpful. Shout out to Mariana, our longtime um, friend and, and educator and researcher and, and mentor. She was the one who made us go to school board meetings or school back to school nights, like having to go to all these events, like actually in the ground, go together. And then some of us were scared. We're like, I don't want to say a comment. And then she's like, go for it, do it. And then I'm like, I don't know what I'm saying, but I'm going to say it. You know, like. And so I think if we were to practice that more often within community, then we'll start actually learning how to mobilize and organize. And to close off, um, I wanted to shout out um, and amplify your article, which was amazing. We're still waiting on your thesis to to be published and be accessible in the um, database, right? In the ProQuest database that takes a little bit. It's on ProQuest. It is? <laughs> I got the email. Yeah, I got the email. So, uh, yeah, if you have access to ProQuest on the uh, library database, you can find uh, you can find my my thesis now. <laughs> yes, we'll include the name and the information in the show notes, and then you can give us the number of the Pro request so people can find it easier and faster. Um, I also wanted to shout out your article that you wrote, uh, Commodified Descent, the Future of Act, uh, the Future of Student Activism, with a question mark at the end. Uh, we'll include all those links and all that information in the show notes. Um, and then where can any of our listeners, if they wanted to get in touch with you or replicate your research project or things like that, 
or even take your class, um, please let us know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm in Orange County, so it's like uh, I'm going to be teaching uh, intro LGBTQ studies with an emphasis on social movements, social organizing. Um, so that'll be at Fullerton College. Uh, I think registration's happening now, and we'll start uh, August 24th. Uh, but as far as like getting connected with me, it's very like social media. It's such a strong thing for. I hate when people talk crap about social media, as I understand it can be toxic. For social movements in the 21st century, this is how we do it. So it's like you know, find me on Facebook, Liz Sanchez. Um, uh, on Instagram, it's a uh, Mr. Liz underscore FN underscore Sanchez. Like I get messages all the time on social media, especially from people on ASI. So like anyone watching this, and you're in student government, send me a message on Instagram, send me a message on Facebook, or you know please e uh, email me. Um, no matter, and or if you know someone, like my phone number has been out there. I've gotten texts from students. I've gotten phone calls from students crying and I'm emphasizing this though, because that means I'm down. I am down to listen to you. If someone does something to you and you don't know who to talk to, please come talk to me and I'll point you in another direction to get help from someone else too. Cause I've met people, tons of people who want to create change in the system and academia and we're slowly growing something. There's not a clear path yet, but we're doing it. So just reach out to me in any way possible. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Liz, for joining us today. We had such a great talk. I'm excited to to see what else you create in the future. And for the students, who will be in your class. Thank you. And, thank you. and shout out to you all for, like, we're doing this during COVID. And, like, I, I, some of y'all are breaking up. And, like, I'm like, I hope I got their question right. Because, <laughs> like, but at the same time, like, you all are going. You're still going. And I think that's so admirable. And, like, just thank you so much for giving platform for people. And, you know, and stay safe and healthy. And just keep going. Keep doing this. We need more students to hear more stories. And you're all doing it. So you're all amazing. I can't wait to see the work that you all are going to accomplish as well. Yeah, and thank you so much for your work. And I think uh, your your thesis is such a such an inspiration and the work that you've done and the and the impact that you've made in a lot of the CSU student leaders is amazing. And and I hope that students can um, get a reach of this episode and refer back to it and look at the show notes and get more resources because this is just the beginning. And I think you have a really long journey ahead that I hope in the future we can later yeah. on organize some sort of event or something to just hold space yeah. for people. Well, if I can just say one more thing, I also want to always acknowledge I've made mistakes too. Like you're going to get called out on social justice. You're going to also social justice socially evolves all the time. The rules of yesterday are not the rules of today. There were things I now question and kind of cringe at like from three years ago, like, Oh God, I can't believe I said that during public comment or something. So I just want you all who are like, who want to get involved, but you're scared because of the culture of it. You'll find people, you'll find like-minded people and people like us here in this conversation now, like we're going to continue to talk about transformative justice and we'll, we're going to do our, our best to all work together. So please just, yeah, I hope folks get involved. Thank you so much. And um, I'm going to close off this episode. Thank you. Bye-bye um, everyone. <laughs> And so for our last segment, we have our Black Indigenous POC business shout out. Um, if you're anything like me right now, I'm doing a new move to my new apartment. So I'm like trying to decorate and trying to make this space as nice and decorative and in place or at least functional um, 
during this times. So we have a uh, Karen J home. Uh, what I really like about this, if you are looking to accessorize, change, put some new lighting, put some cool things in your house, they have a lot of things from pillows all the way to aroma and wall uh, decorations. Um, so check them out. Uh, I really like this post that they had on Instagram where they um, launched and they talked about the launching of their new business. So uh, I originally postponed our launch due to COVID-19 pandemic. Our new launch date was May 15th, then June 1st. But as uh, but we felt as a team that the world needed to focus its attention on the more pressing matter of racial equality. Now that there is a keen interest and focus on amplifying Black voices and creatives, we thought it would be more appropriate time to share that we've been working on. To support the initiative of amplifying Black voices and creatives of color, Karen J. Home um, was working on donating a percentage of sales to Black Design Collective led by Angela Dean. So you can look at their Instagram page and their website. We'll have all that information about um, our amplified Black-owned business, Karen J. Home. And uh, if you're thinking about interior designing or making your your space cute, um, definitely check them out. I'll, I'm like having on my tab to see like what things I could include in my home. For all of our listeners, you can email us at chicanacodeswitchers at gmail.com and send us your POC business conference and event shoutouts and listener letters. You could also record a listener message on Anchor app, and that way we can include your recorded message in our future episodes. Follow us on Instagram at chicanacodeswitchers and on Twitter at xcodeswitchers. If you would like to support this podcast, you can Venmo or cash app us at Chicana Code Switchers and or become a Patreon contributor. Thank you. And don't forget, switch the code. Don't let the code switch you.